Hello Cult Hackers, my name is Stephen Mather, organisational psychologist, former member of a high control group and one of your hosts. Today is an episode from our series Cults on Film and I will be analysing the 2012 movie The Master, written and directed by Paul Thomas Anderson, starring Joaquin Phoenix, Philip Seymour Hoffman and Amy Adams. The Master is a movie that the studio claimed had received pressure from Scientology not to be made, presumably because they assumed it might put the organisation in a less than favourable light. The writer and director Paul Thomas Anderson admitted that he had been inspired by L. Ron Hubbard, the founder of Scientology, and it's clear there are many recognisable elements in the film. But although it may have been a starting point, Anderson has created something new that draws from cults and cultic groups in general. So by imagining that this is just a story about one group would mean missing the elements of the fictional movement, the cause, that can be found in cults around the world. Joaquin Phoenix plays Freddie Quell, a disturbed Navy seaman at the end of the Second World War. Much about Freddie's character is laid out for us right at the start of the film. He joins other sailors making a sort of sand sculpture at the beach of a woman lying down. His sexual behaviour around this is strange and disturbing. We then watch as a group of men are being demobbed, including Freddy. And we hear that these are all men suffering from what we would now describe as PTSD, from their experiences in the war. We also watch as presumably an army psychiatrist or psychologist carries out a Rorschach test on Freddy. All the pictures look sexual to him. We also see him talk about a letter and a suggestion that he had a girl back home. He also had a dream. It seems like a dream of a homely family setting. We next see Freddy as a photographer at a department store. Joaquin Phoenix plays Freddy throughout as highly strung, fidgety and on the edge. At any moment he's likely to do something strange or dangerous. Freddy clearly has a problem with impulse control. He has a sort of liaison in a cupboard with a fashion model, but again, this is strange. It's sexual, but he behaves more like a teenager and giggles at the sight of her. Freddy is disturbed. He has PTSD. He suffers from poor impulse control and he has a problem with alcohol. After Freddy loses his job at the store due to a fight with a customer, we next see him working on the land with a crew harvesting vegetables. But again, his behaviour gets him into trouble. Again, he's making his own alcohol, but one of his workmates seems to be poisoned by it and he runs. We see later the sort of things that Freddy puts into his liquor and it's no surprise, paint thinner, crushed pills and so on. So by now the film has established Freddy as a deeply disturbed and tragic individual. As he staggers by he notices a boat at the jetty. It looks appealing and he heads towards it. The next thing we see is him being awoken in the boat by a young woman who takes him to see the person in charge. This person is Philip Seymour Hoffman's character Lancaster Dodd aka The Master. 
One of the cultic markers to look out for here is the behaviour of many cult leaders, particularly in the early days of a cult, while the cult leader is forming the movement. At their first meeting, the power differential is clear. Dodd tells him that he's aberrated. An unusual word. He asks Freddy if he knows what that means. Notice this positions Dodd as the one with the knowledge, the greater wisdom. He tells Freddy that he's wandered from the proper path. We just accept this statement, this conversation as normal, but it's an unusual thing to say to someone you've only just met. Again, it places Dodd in a position of authority. He then tells Freddy, you seem so familiar to me. A claim he makes numerous times throughout the film, which creates a sort of intimacy between them. What do you do? asks Freddy. I do many, many things. I am a writer, a doctor, a nuclear physicist, a theoretical philosopher, but above all, I am a man, a hopelessly inquisitive man. This grandiosity is typical of a cult leader. We see no evidence of any of these claims. In fact, later we see him spouting what can only be described as mumbo-jumbo, clearly demonstrating that he is no physicist or doctor. In fact, later he will find himself in jail for practising medicine without a licence. And the faux humility is also interesting. So after making these grandiose claims, he says, but above all, I am a man, a hopelessly inquisitive man. This gives him the appearance that he's like Freddy, but he's already elevated himself to guru status. After this, Dodd betrays his own drinking problem and promises to let Freddy stay if he can make more of the moonshine that he had in his pocket. He's tasted it and wants some. As Freddy is getting cleaned up, we notice a number of copies of the same book stashed in the bathroom. This is Dodd's book, which contains his wisdom. We now meet the rest of the group known as The Cause. His daughter is getting married to Clark, played by Remy Malek. Here we see more of Dodd's grandiosity. Dodd officiates at his daughter's wedding. He makes a bizarre speech, which his faithful throng lap up. He charismatically holds the attention of the audience as he tells a story about taming the dragon. Is he talking about Freddy? Dodd also seems a bit worse for wear from the drink, but he can't leave the party quietly. We fought against the day and we won. We won, he says pompously. We now meet Peggy Dodd, the young wife of the master. She talks to Freddy and we learn that there are people who oppose the master. That's why he likes to come out to sea. He also has ex-wives he wishes to avoid. At various points throughout the film we observe practices that are part of the cult's way of operating. We observe multiple examples of what looks like so-called hypnotic regression where individuals are told they have visited earlier periods of their life or even past lives. There's an important scene which I will talk about in a moment where the master is challenged during one of these apparent regression sessions. But perhaps the most psychologically interesting scene relates to processing. Of course, all special interest groups, cults or not, use jargon. It's how language develops. But cults are particularly skilled at inventing novel ways of describing practices. 
So processing is the name the cause gives to the way of, let's say, interrogating recruits. It's quite a lengthy scene and it's full of influential tricks. Processing appears to have a number of functions for the group. Again, it establishes a power dynamic. The way cult leaders dominate their members is at the heart of the psychological process of indoctrination and obedience. This so-called processing in this scene may be fictional, but the components of it are clearly representative of real practices some cults use. So here are some of my observations about this scene. We have an intimate setting, a small room, just Freddy and the master. Whilst a lot of Freddy's treatment is carried out literally with an audience of believers observing, this is not. The room has low light. There is a small table between them. Their faces are relatively close together as the master asks Freddy a set of quick-fire questions and commands. He repeats the same question or command over and over again at times. Sometimes the repetition seems to be designed to get a more genuine response and at others it seems almost hypnotic. So, right at the beginning. Say your name. Freddy Quill. Say it again. Freddy Quill. Say it again. Freddy Quill. Say it again. Freddy Quill. You might as well say it one more time to make sure you know who you are. Freddy Quill. What is the purpose of this, really? Again, power and control. The master is in control. He can insist Freddy engage in an interaction he wouldn't normally be willing to take part in. In any normal setting, Freddy would have not put up with this constant repetition. And yet here, with the master, he bends to his will and follows his commands. There is also a hypnotic quality to it too. Rhythmic, repetitive, like a persistent musical beat. The questions now get more personal, but swings wildly from the general to the suggestive. Are you thoughtless in your remarks? I usually put some thoughts into them. Do you linger at bus stations for pleasure? Freddy finds this funny and laughs. No. Do you have muscle spasms for no reason? All this has a hint of cold reading, although perhaps not so cold. By this point, Dodd has observed Freddy for some time. Freddy is fidgety, with the hint of the odd nervous tick. It would seem a decent bet that Freddy might identify some of this vague description as something he does. But no, Freddy denies it. Do your past failures bother you? No. Dodd repeats. Do your past failures bother you? Again, he repeats. Do your past failures bother you? Freddy hesitates more this time. No. Do your past failures in life bother you? Again, Freddy is hesitant, but insists. No. Is your life a struggle? No. Do you like to be told what to do? No. Is your behaviour erratic? Freddy nods, but he says no. This continues. So, what is happening here? I see this as an attack on Freddy's identity and feelings of self-regard. This is important to the cult, and I'll explain why. A cult leader wants people to change. They want them to become followers and members of the group. They may want the labour, the money, the political or social capital, or a host of other things. 
Most people will not give these things willingly for free. So the cult leader needs to find a way to break through the normal barriers. This scene is a demonstration of Dodd trying to break through Freddy's defences. He may be troubled, but Freddy is not a pushover. He's answering the questions in a way he would see as the most socially acceptable, and that puts him in a good light, something that we all do. No, he doesn't loiter at bus stations. He does think about his words. He is not haunted by failure. Freddy's defences are holding for now, but the master does not give up. Do you find interest in other people? Do you find it easy to be fair? Are you often consumed by envy? This question seems to find a chink in Freddy's armour. It's actually a loaded question. It has no simple answer. Obviously the answer yes puts Freddy in a negative light, but even by answering no, it implies he is consumed by envy sometimes. So Freddy seeks clarification, but Dodd refuses to clarify and just repeats, are you often consumed by envy? You mean like jealousy? Dodd confirms. This time Freddy admits that he doesn't like someone else's hands on his girls. He doesn't like to think about it. It makes him sick. Again, a hint of a psychological difficulty here with the way that he thinks about sex. This is a small win for Dodd. He has tapped into an area that he might be able to exploit later, but he doesn't press at this time. Are you scientific in your thought? Freddy appears confident, yes. Now the master homes in on his behaviour. Are you concerned with the impression you make? Freddy seems uncomfortable. I don't understand. Yes, you do. Again, Dodd has found a chink. The questions continue. Slowly, Dodd is grinding down his defences. When Dodd asks if he is unpredictable, Freddy looks uncomfortable for a moment and then passes wind. He farts. This is clearly a defensive mechanism and he laughs and apologises like a little boy. The master smiles and says he's silly. Silly animal. A reference to his philosophy about humankind being able to rise above the animal. The implication is that he is telling Freddy that he needs to learn to put away his animal side. It's good to laugh, even if we're laughing at the sound of an animal, he says. All through this processing, the master has been recording. He speaks into the microphone now, gives the time and date and signs off by stating the location as the sailing vessel Elithia and logged by LT, MOC, MD. Well, I may have missed something in the film, but I don't know what these initials stand for. Perhaps MD is a claim to be a medical doctor, but again, they signify his grandiosity. The process is also carried out with certainty and confidence and in a blasé way that is just seen as a normal thing to do. Observers of cultic practices often find the rituals strange, but to the adherents, they are as routine as laying a table or making the bed. So the master is ending the session, but Freddy's disappointed. That's it? For now. Freddy says no, he wants more. 
And here is an insight into Freddy that makes him at this moment vulnerable. You've got to ask me more. This is fun. You've got to ask me more. Throughout the film, Phoenix plays Freddy with such pathos. He's a man whom nobody cares about. No one is interested in him. No one cares what he thinks or has to say. He was in love with an inappropriately young girl and loses her. He was raised by his aunt, with whom we find out during processing that he has had some sort of incestuous relationship. He is sexually inept and repressed. He has no friends, can't hold down a job. So the experience of this charismatic figure showing him attention and actually caring what he has to say is intoxicating to him. In a word, Freddy is vulnerable. Now, the question of whether cults prey on the weak and vulnerable is tricky. Researchers suggest that there are times and situations that might make us more susceptible to cult influence. For instance, cults often recruit at universities. Young people, perhaps away from their parents for the first time, intelligent, inquisitive, not yet fixed in their views. Also perhaps feeling lonely and seeking a new social group are seen as a good mark. So it's right to say that a cult might take advantage of certain vulnerabilities in a person. But it's also important not to get the impression that it's only the weak and vulnerable that get sucked into cults. The character of Freddy is a vulnerable one, with obvious mental health issues. But other members of the cult are not like this. One of the biggest dangers of cults is that people tend to believe themselves impervious to their tactics. That cults are only dangerous to stupid people, or those easily led. Let me say it here and now, this is not the case. Anyone can be tricked by a cult. I'm going to leave this scene here, but it's quite lengthy, and the filmmakers, in my view, demonstrate how the master is able to skillfully break down the person and begin to rebuild them in the way they want them to be. He exposes deep and personal things about Freddy, things that could get him into trouble if reported to the authorities. Don't forget, this is being recorded, a potential source of leverage later. Cults want you to change. Not for your own benefit, but for the benefit of the group. They want you to change so you can work for them, so you can evangelise, so you can contribute, and so that you are controllable, and obedient to whatever you are told to do. The method demonstrated in this scene is by no means the only way this is accomplished. Cults have their own ways of doing things. This is but one. A second practice of the cult, the cause, is the use of what looks like so-called hypnotic regression, although he is to deny this claim and call it dehypnotization. We observe an older woman apparently the owner of the boat he used to get there, experiencing what appears to be a hypnosis session in front of a group of onlookers. She reports certain experiences whilst in this hypnotic state and asks questions afterwards about her feelings about a man she saw during the session. Was that me? Dodd tells her what she has experienced in mystical terms. Yes, that was your spirit. Our spirits live on through the whole of time, exist in many vessels through time. This is the vessel you're existing in now, in 1950. He goes on to explain, with absolute certainty, 
that it is of vital importance during her session that she experience every specific detail. Psychology is an incredibly wide field of study with many different ways of explaining psychological phenomena. Developed in the 90s by Jonathan Potter and Derek Edwards, discursive psychology is one of these different perspectives and is of interest to us here as a way to think about the way the master uses words. One of the primary tenets of discursive psychology is that from a social science perspective, talk and discourse does not simply describe social reality, but it constructs and shapes it. In public discourse, we are probably familiar of pressure groups wishing to change the narrative around certain social issues, to challenge previously socially accepted norms and interpretations of what's going on. On an individual level, this can be observed too, and researchers will use transcripts of real discourse to identify how people do work with words. We use words to position ourselves within the discussion and to try to provide a framework for what we think reality is. This is a very useful way to observe the dialogue present in cults. Notice how the master does this. His words are not just telling, but doing. They are positioning himself as the source of this absolutely vital knowledge, reinforcing his power and authority. He's not the only one. His wife Peggy also does the same, as do other members of the group. During this scene with the woman coming out of this regression therapy, the reality that the master is constructing is suddenly challenged by a gentleman named John Moore. Moore breaks some social rules by interrupting the session and outspokenly asking for evidence of his claims. Yeah, it's uncomfortable. Dodd gamely attempts to maintain the reality he's created where his audience seems to be hanging on his every word. But he's now a creature out of his natural environment. He's now being asked to explain to a sceptic and provide evidence for his claims in front of others. His first instinct is to encourage the sceptic to experience it himself. The sceptic wisely says, perhaps another time. More, the sceptic challenges the claim that the cause methods can cure leukaemia as claimed by the movement. But Dodd doubles down, saying some types of leukaemia can be cured by going back to past lives, sometimes from trillions of years into the past. This is an outrageous claim, as the universe is only about 13.5 billion years old. Even in the 50s, this is a claim that is sure to bring derision from any scientifically minded individual. That he would say this calls into question his earlier claim to be a physicist, and it's hard to work out whether he makes it purely to gaslight the group, or whether he really believes it. From this point on, he uses what cult researchers sometimes call thought-stopping cliches. So in response to Moore's question that he must surely understand scepticism, his answer is yes, yes, for without it we would all be positives with no negatives, therefore zero charge. Meaningless word salad delivered to sound like profound wisdom. 
skeptic demands that his ideas are challenged and debated. Otherwise, they are merely the will of one man, which is the basis of cult, he says. The master's response is more meaningless phrases. That is why we are working at breakneck speeds and in unison towards capturing the mind's fatal flaws and correcting it back to its inherent state of perfect. He pauses. Whilst writing civilization and eliminating war and poverty, and therefore the atomic threat. More, the sceptic, looks incredulous at what's just come out of the master's mouth. Even Dodd's own son looks knowingly, a hint of a smile on his face. We learn later that he knows his father just makes it up as he goes along. Moore presses the master further, laughing at him and calling out the ridiculous claims that time travel through hypnosis can bring about world peace and cure cancer. Dodd tries a childish illustration to try and prove his point, trying to equate the fact that they can both believe that the pyramids of Egypt exist, even though they've not seen them themselves. Oddly, Moore seems slightly stumped by this argument. Illustrations or metaphors can never provide evidence for a fact. They can maybe help explain it, but in order for the illustration to convince somebody, they must accept the premise. In this case, that believing claims of curing cancer through hypnotic time travel is the same as believing the reports of the existence of the pyramids. Clearly, these two things are not alike. Up until now, Dodd has been playing defence, but he now stands up and decides it's time to go on the offensive. He asks more if what the cause is doing scares him. Are you afraid that we might find that our past has been reshapen, perverted, and perhaps that what we think we know of this world is false information? This rings lots of bells in relation to conspiracy theories. I've personally been told by a true believer that I can learn, but I must forget everything I thought I knew. The desire for us to make sense of a confusing and complex world means at times it can feel very attractive to get answers from a master who knows. But the assertion that our understanding of the universe is not complete and therefore requires forgetting everything we thought we knew is something of a leap, especially in the face of the evidence for what we do know versus the basis claims of a man like Dot. There's so much to talk about with this film and so many insights into cult behaviour, but I'm going to have to skip forward a few scenes. Otherwise, this episode would be three hours long. So it appears that the old woman, the recipient of the hypnotic regression and owner of the boat Dodd was using, has not been convinced and is angry about money she spent and the damage to her boat. The police come for Dodd. The accusation? Practising medicine without a licence. Freddy tries to prevent the arrest through violence, again demonstrating that although he's now been under the treatment of the master for some time, his behaviour has not really changed. He still suffers from the exact same problems of a lack of emotional and impulse control. The master and Freddy happen to have jail cells next to each other, and Freddy is angry with Dodd. His rage is white hot and he smashes up his cell. Dodd appears calm, but also loses his cool in his interaction with Freddy. Are they really that different, we ask? 
Maybe the only basic difference is the emotional control and surface charm of Dot. And with this, he manages to manipulate people and get his way, whereas Freddy's life appears meaningless and pathetic. In fact, there are a number of ways the film encourages to compare the two men. They both have a problem with alcohol. They are both, in their own ways, unconventional and unpredictable in their behaviour. They both have bad tempers, although, as we've said, Dodd is able to control his most of the time, although not all. There is also perhaps some suggestion of a homoerotic element to their relationship. For example, their greeting when Freddy comes back to the house is unexpected, as they hug and then start to wrestle on the floor. But this element is not fully explored. We now get to observe more work on Freddy. Meaningless exercises, or applications as Dodd and his wife called them. Again, whatever these exercises are supposed to be achieving, they seem to have little impact on Freddy's behaviour, except generating a lot of frustration within him. It's clear that the exercises are not to help him, more to make sure he becomes more indoctrinated within the group. Okay, I want to skip now to the release of Lancaster Dodd's The Master's second book. We see Freddy handing out flyers on the street, trying to get people to attend this momentous day. He knows it's important. He went with the master to the desert to dig up a box with hidden papers inside it. Dodd's life's work. It must be special. Free yourself from your past trauma, Freddy copies Clark as they hand out the flyers. Take command of your life. Freddie records a testimonial to tell the world how much the cause has helped him. And as a photographer, his skills are used to take portraits of Dodd. He's now fully part of the group, at least in his actions. A lot of cult life is performative. So much of what members do is a way to strengthen their own commitment by performing acts and tasks for the group. The day of the launch arrives and Freddie is there. Not simply as an attendee, but he's now part of the arrangements. He greets everyone like a brother. Maybe he's found his home. We see some pensive moments for Dodd as he waits to go on stage. And we're prompted to wonder how much he knows that what he is saying is meaningless nonsense and how much he believes himself. It is now that any idea that we as the audience might have had that the master is in any way special takes a knockout blow. After a grandiose introduction about the cause by Peggy, Dodd stands on the platform as he launches his second book, The Split Sabre. No more secrets. Here we have some answers, he says. I have unlocked and discovered the secret to living in these bodies that we hold. And, oh yes, it's very, very, very serious. He seems to be making fun of himself and the audience, and everyone laughs together. The master now is starting to appear more obviously deluded. Is that because we've watched throughout and realised that he's this vapid character? He continues, the secret is laughter. The audience laughs, but slightly hesitantly. Is that it? What sort of answer is that? 
Freddy looks on from the audience, a picture of stoic confusion. Outside the hall, Freddy paces like a caged animal. He meets an editor of Dodd's earlier work, who asks him, What do you think of the book? I don't know. What do you think about it? I think it stinks, he says. If it was up to me, I'd chop this thing into a three-page pamphlet. Freddy asks to see him outside, and yes, you've guessed it, he slaps him around. Again, it's obvious, Freddy's no better. And his behaviour appears to be at least partly down to the anxiety of his own misgivings about the book and the faith. But he's torn towards loyalty to Dodd and the evidence before his eyes that these are answers to nothing. Being torn between loyalty and the realisation that you're being told lies is an uncomfortable feeling and one that any lever of a cult will likely have experienced, including me. After the release of the book, one of his acolytes comes to him. It's a character called Helen Sullivan, played by Laura Dern, who we saw earlier doing some reading to the group. Now she's a true believer, and begins by praising the master. She thinks the book is wonderful. But she is concerned about a seeming contradiction, and needs to ask the master about it. She's noticed a change of doctrine on page 13. In it, he's changed the processing platform question. In the chapter, he instructs the questioner to ask, Can you imagine? But as Sullivan points out, if our previous method was to induce memory with, Can you recall? Doesn't it change everything now that we're asking, Can you imagine? Again, the master tries to deal calmly with this challenge, this time from one of his followers. We are now invoking a new, wider range to account for the new data. Again, meaningless and no attempt to present the data he's talking about. Can you imagine allows for a more creative pathway to the mind? Sullivan is not satisfied. She genuinely doesn't understand, but wants to, and tries to explain her concerns. Cult leaders do not appreciate being challenged. He gets angry and shouts, What do you want? She's embarrassed and disturbed. Dodd composes himself. This is the new work. In other words, forget what I said before. You need to accept this now. In my ex-group, this is called new light. The new light replaces the old light. You believe this now. Accept it. To me, the picture at this point in the film suggests the beginning of a slow decline. But that is not necessarily the case. Once cults reach a certain critical mass, they have some momentum and can often overcome apparently serious issues such as failed prophecy, massive U-turns in doctrine and even the incapacity or death of the leader. The next scene is interesting. Dodd takes his daughter, her husband and Freddy, to play some sort of game on the desert flats. He calls it Pick a Point. It's a strange game, and it's really just about riding a motorbike as fast as possible to a point in the distance and then coming back again. Why is he doing this with Freddy? I think, again, it's about control. Basically, he wants Freddy to be like a homing pigeon. No matter how far he gets away, he'll always come back. So the master demonstrates 
It's a long take as we watch Dodd riding the Triumph motorbike at speed into the distance and then returning. It's now Freddy's turn. Freddy gets onto the bike and rides. And rides. And rides. The master watches approvingly. He's going very fast. Good boy. The game is working as he hoped. Freddy is obedient. As the camera cuts between Freddy on the bike and the master watching, it begins to dawn on us, and Dodd, he's not coming back. (laughs) Ultimately, the master has failed to control Freddy, and Freddy rides off into the distance. Freddy visits his hometown and the house of his sweetheart. It's been years and his girl has left and got married. Her mother is kind and talks nicely to Freddy. It's now that our hearts ache for this man, despite his bad behaviour. He is a tragic figure. He knows that it was never going to work, she was too young, but she'd been a sort of dream, a North Star, that he'd tried to replace in some way with the cult. He's sanguine, he knows. Rather than leave Freddy alone to make the best of his life, the cause is not finished with him. While he's at a cinema, somehow the master tracks him down by phone. He tells Freddy that he misses him. Come to England, he tells Freddy, to a new school that they've created. He tells him that he has a matter of such urgency that only you can help me. He promises that with his help, he can cure the insane once and for all. He also remembers where they've met. Come to England. Freddy is greeted at the school by Dodd's son, the one who knew his father was just making it all up. He knows a good gravy train when he sees one. The final scenes with the cause are in many ways strange. We have a monologue from Peggy, Dodd's wife, that is pretty harsh. She thinks he's wasting their time. You can't take this life straight, can you? She says. What do you want? She asked Freddy. What did you expect would happen coming here? A strange question, given that Dodd had asked him to come to help him with something of the utmost importance. Freddy's not sure how to answer that. He offers his services again as a photographer. Peggy says that they have no need of pictures. This is something you do for a billion years or not at all. This is a clear and obvious reference to Scientology, and in many ways can be seen as a way for the filmmaker right at the end of the film to say, yes, I was talking about Scientology all this time. This is pointless, she says. He isn't interested in getting better, and walks out. I see this as possibly a final gambit to keep Freddy here. He's come to England, so they still have some power over him, but he's shown himself unreliable. Peggy is the bad cop to Dodd's good cop, perhaps. The master claims to have known Freddy from a past life in Paris as members of the Pigeon Post under siege by the Prussian army. This is all meaningless to Freddy. Dodd now gives Freddy a choice. No, an ultimatum. If you leave here, I don't ever want to see you again. Or you can stay. To be clear, staying means coming back 
under the full control of the cult. The concept of disconnection is something Scientology practices, other groups call it shunning or disfellowshipping, but it all amounts to the same thing. A total rejection of any association with the person, a cutting off from the love of the group. In many groups, this is a devastating blow, especially for born-in members who have few, if any, social contacts outside the group and might have relied upon it for work or housing. In Freddie's case, this is perhaps not so big a problem, although it would mark a final cutting of ties. But it's not just this life Freddie should worry about. If we meet again in the next life, says the Master, you will be my sworn enemy, and I will show you no mercy. And then we watch uncomfortably, as the Master gently sings a full verse of I'd like to get you on a slow boat to China. It's a remarkable scene, as it seems to go on and on, as the master sings the song to Freddy, looking him straight in the eyes throughout. A tear falls down Freddy's cheek. He puts his head in his hands, as the master's voice strengthens, looking intently at Freddy. What does this scene mean? Is this another hint at a wished-for relationship? Or just a belief that given the time and with no interference, the master could have broken him. Throughout, the film tells us that Freddy just wants to be loved. After the meeting, he meets an English girl in a pub and she takes him to her bed. We remember from the beginning of the film, Freddy had an unhealthy obsession about sex, but appeared to have difficulty with normal sexual relationships. But here... During sex, Freddy uses the questions from the process and oddly seems to connect with her in a way he struggled to in the past. Perhaps in an unintended and bizarre way, he's learned something useful from his experience or maybe he's just matured. I know from my own life that leaving a high control group or cult is difficult. Listening to many people's stories, some believe they've learned something positive from their experience and others strongly don't feel that way at all. What is for sure is that living in a cult is a powerful experience that impacts and influences your view of yourself and life in general. The first time I watched The Master, I have to admit, I was disappointed. I'd heard and read the wonderful critical reviews Plus, it was a subject very close to my heart. Sometimes high expectations can kill a movie. But the second time, I started to watch much more carefully. And more and more, the movie opened up to me. The script is beautifully written. The players are excellent and the cinematography is brave. But for me, what makes the movie so special is the direction. At times, it's almost... Kubrick-esque in its willingness to hold a frame and allow us to explore every slightest gesture and facial movement in the scene. I recommend it as a piece of art but also as a way to watch the subtle techniques of a master manipulator and the workings of a cult. As I mentioned at the start of this episode it would be a mistake to interpret the film as simply a story about Scientology. 
Clearly, the master is inspired by L. Ron Hubbard, and there are concepts that are close to ideas presented in Scientology. But its ambition is much wider than that. If there's one thing Celine and I have found doing the Cult Hackers podcast, it's the similarities between what at first glance appear to be very different sorts of groups. So the movie is not just about one cult. It's about the many methods of manipulations cults employ across the board. From religious groups, to wellness groups, from multi-level marketing, to political groups. But if you're interested in specific allusions to Scientology in this movie, can I recommend a fellow podcaster? Chris Shelton, former guest on our show, reviewed this movie on his channel from a former Scientologist perspective. And I've popped a link in the show notes if you want to watch that. Thank you for listening to the Cult Hackers podcast. Cult Hackers is a podcast that tries to get into the details of how cults work and the psychology of leaving and making sense of the world afterwards. Don't forget, please follow, subscribe, and if possible, leave a review.